Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we're getting into it. Sleeves up, getting into the Damn. offense. Elbows deep this week. This is where it starts. Uh, the offseason, uh, really is no offseason for us, really. It's just a lot of study time is what it is. Uh, and we, yeah. uh, we hit the books, coming at you hard. We got a lot to cover this week. A lot of news, definitely a lot of offensive stuff. And I'm super pumped about this episode because we get to talk about real football again. It's going to be awesome. Hey, it's always fun. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird um, that we've probably at least I know I have been watching maybe even more football now that the season's over than Correct. I was during the season. I was watching a lot then. So, uh, yeah, no, no real offseason. We're, we're getting into it. I watched a lot of Jordan Matthews uh, last weekend. A lot of Jordan Matthews. I am familiar with every one of his three moves off the line, and he only has three of them. Uh, but but first, it's National Margarita Day. It is indeed National Margarita Day. So if you're listening to this, chances are it's the morning, uh, and it's no longer National Margarita Day, and you're a bit sadder than we are in this moment. Uh, but cheers to hashtag National Margarita Day. So let's get into the rundown, though, because lots of things are happening in 49er land. We have a coaching staff that is finally final, and we've got uh, Better Rivals name of the year, Robert Sala. I think I did it right. Did I do it right? We got it. Sala rhymes with Chala. Sala. Rhymes with Hala. Look, all I know is that whoever was probably Bob Lang put out the pronunciation I think that's where I saw it. I don't know. Somebody put out the pronunciation. Yeah, Bob Lang, PR um, guy for the 49ers. Yeah, the, the phonetic spelling there. That's how it was. Sala. So that's what we're going with. If it's wrong, ain't our fault. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to go and I mean, there's I will make a ho- I'm, I'm going to make a Hala joke at some point. We've got Chala <laughs> bread. We've got Hala. I'm I'm oh, we're, the ideas for the better rivals drinking game for next season are percolating. They are indeed percolating. <laughs> uh, so it's going to be good. So, so that's definitely a big hire, the defensive coordinator. And as expected, of course, he's mo- more than likely going to move us over to that 4-3 under defense, which we're not going to get too deep into the 4-3 under this week because that is indeed going to be one of our episodes that we're going to cover later. So we are going to get super deep into what the 4-3 under means, how our personnel fits, but that's not for this week. This week, we're going to talk about the running game that Kyle Shanahan is going to bring to San Francisco or Santa Clara, depending on how salty you are. So other notable hires is going to be Bobby Turner as a running back coach. And that means that, of course, Tom Rathman, no longer running back coach here for the 49ers. David, how do you feel about that? Saw a lot of stuff on Twitter that they were like, they couldn't keep him. I can't believe it. He's he's like, he's the greatest thing to happen to running backs since legs. What's, <laughs> Man, that's what's pretty, going on? That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, obviously, it sucks to see somebody like that go that's been around the organization for a long time. You know, was there as a player and he, he's kind of this beloved figure. Um, in the organization that it sucks to lose somebody like that, but um, that they are not losing out because they got, you know, a worse running back coach like Bobby Turner is is pretty much the guy for this outside zone scheme that we're going to be talking about here a little bit later that Shanahan is is going to be bringing. I mean, he's been coaching running backs in this scheme under a Shanahan since 1995, since since Mike Shanahan took over uh, in, in Denver there. So he's you know, arguably the best running back coach in football. Um, you know, at least when you, you listen to guys that are, um, you know, kind of more familiar with uh, position coaches have a little bit more insight than that than we do, like consider to be among the best in that. And especially for this particular scheme. So yeah, it sucks to lose Rathman, but they got a quality guy that's going to, to do some good things there. 
Hopefully over the course of this episode, we'll, we'll make the case that really the, the zone is the foundation for what Shanahan is going to do for the entire offense. And so it makes a whole lot of sense that someone like Bobby Turner, who has coached this style of, or really the system of running, is going to be the guy. Also, you got to respect Shanahan for saying, I promised him that I would bring him whenever I got my head coaching gig. And that's exactly what he did. Because what kind of an asshat would he be uh, if he was like, hey, I know that I promised you this thing, but sorry, bro. Um, and it's not like he didn't try to keep Rathman. He did. Yeah. And from Rathman's interview on, K- I think it was on KNBR, he said basically he didn't want to have competing philosophies. He didn't want to play second fiddle. He didn't want to be an assistant head coach. And so he was like, you know what? I'm going to take the year off and I'm going to go coach running back somewhere else because that's what I do. I coach running back. So got to respect that. And I think it's, it's a really a good move for everyone involved. Then you've got uh, John Benton as an offensive line coach. He was the offensive line coach in Houston the entire time that Kubiak was there, 06 to 2013. Uh, and, and that includes the overlap with Cal Shanahan. D'Amico Ryans is a defensive quality control coach. Um, Chip Kelly even made a comment about how he thought he was going to be a great coach. And by all accounts, he's a super bright guy. For, for those that aren't aware, defensive quality control or offensive quality control, that's kind of like the, the low person in on the staff totem pole. They're usually doing a lot of film cut-ups. They're gathering a lot of intel. They're doing a lot of charting. This is where the coaching ladder begins for most people. Even Jim Harbaugh started as an offensive quality control coach for Oakland way back in the day. So this is where everyone starts in you know, 10, 12, 15 years. These are the people that go on to coordinator roles if they succeed. These are the people that assume the head coaching roles. Uh, and then the last person, of course, is Bobby Slowick. And he's also a defensive quality control coach. And uh, he's, of course, notable for being uh, formerly, up until he got this job, a member of Pro Football Focus. Or not a member, but a... a uh, staff member at Pro Football Focus. Yeah, he was one of the analysts there. Um, it, I, I thought those were interesting. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, quality control coach is in and of itself like not a super exciting position, and it's uh, a lot of shitty work, and uh, you, you're basically re- responsible for accumulating all the data that's going into game planning, right? Like you're doing the grunt work, um, you know, charting opponent formations, all that sort of thing, so that you can give that information to the coaches and they can kind of build their game plan from it. Um, so it's, it's not, while it's, they're doing important work, it's not like the most glamorous position or they're going to have the, the, the most impact on your win loss record or something like that. But, um, I thought, yeah, those two guys in particular, um, you know, bright guys, like, uh, I thought it was interesting that there was a PFF connection there with Bobby. So, uh, yeah, it was just kind of some notable names that I thought was a, a little interesting. And that rounds out the staff, really. I mean, you've got every major position filled. You've got assistants and quality control coaches uh, filled as well. We're not going to go through every single hire here. uh, But we do, I mean, we do have a list of them up here on screen, David, of the ones, other than the ones that we've mentioned so far, um, you know, whether it be Bobby Turner or D'Amico Ryans, is there any, you know, either assistant or position coach or even coordinator that jumps out at you as, as something that's notable? Um, I think the 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 most notable that we didn't talk about there uh, was was actually somebody we talked about last time that we recorded, which was Mike McDaniel. I think um, he's somebody again that's that's uh, very bright, was very instrumental um, in kind of fixing a lot of things. You know, with Shanahan, he was kind of like his one B, so to speak. And so I think it's nice to have him along, somebody that's going to. I mean, he's run game specialist is his title. They're not going with an offensive coordinator. He's going to, I think, be the closest thing to an offensive coordinator that they have. He's going to be really instrumental in, in kind of helping Kyle build the game plan. So I think he's a, a certainly a big name for them. And I think for me, it's really the the retention of Jason Tarver in no other role than senior defensive assistant. 
that that like who knows exactly what that means, right? That's kind of an amorphous description. But if I were to if I were to craft that job description, I would say Jason Tarver is effectively the elder statesman on a defensive staff that is dominated by a lot of really young people. I mean, you look at Robert Sala, first-time defensive coordinator. He's and Jason Tarver's been a defensive coordinator before. He's been in the league for a long time. I think that really what Jason's going to do is to help help curate those game plans, help make sure there's nothing Robert's missing, still definitely be the number two, but he will have an active hand in really the guidance and and some of that senior stuff that you might have, you know, what you would hope to get from a more tenured defensive assistant. And the fact that he was retained over staff, at least to me, when someone's retained over staff, it means not only are they pretty good at their job, but they also have the capacity to build relationships and remain well-liked in the building. And so for no other reason than the fact that he was retained, I think that Jason Tarver probably fits that bill. So an interesting person, I think, to, to keep in the building, not because I think he's bad at his job, but just because it's a, a role to watch depending on how the season plays out. Yeah, I think that is maybe like the one final thing that that I think is kind of interesting with how everything came together was uh, just the, the fact that you have really young guys at a lot of the key positions, right? So yep. obviously Kyle being the head coach, you know, Mike McDaniel, if you want to consider him de facto offensive coordinator, Robert Sala, defensive coordinator, all very young guys, um, all kind of stepping into these roles essentially for the first time. And even John Lynch, I mean, even all yeah, the way through the front office. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and, and then your experience, you know, comes more in some of the positional coaches, right? Bobby Turner, John Benton on offense. Um, I think I forget. I know Halfley, I think, uh, actually a younger guy, too. I mean, d- the defensive side of the ball, I don't know that they have some of the same guys. There's a few like defensive line. I'm not very familiar with Jeff um, in in kind of where he came from. But, yeah, they're they're experienced tends to be more in the positional coaches, which I think is kind of an interesting way that they they kind of approach building that staff. Jeff is a former player, I believe. And here's another name. Jeff uh, Zgonina. Zgonina. Jeff Zganina. Zganina. Is it Zganina or Zganina? I don't don't know. English is a weird language. Let's Uh, just drop that Z. Let's just like pretend that it's not there. Jeff Goniga. (laughs) Let's just add (laughs) random letters in there. (laughs) Jeff. This is going to be great. Um, but he I think he played for a long time. I think he was an actual defensive lineman for like 12 or 13 years before he changed over to, to be a position coach. So um, I think that's most of his experience. But yeah, I mean, I think now that we've got a, a full staff um, <laughs> in, in your mind, really quickly, before we get to one of the big moves that we made very, very recently earlier today, do you think that Shanahan was handicapped by the fact that he was hired so late? and the quality of staff members that he eventually hired now that the, the, the staff is rounded out. I, th- I don't think it was that bad. I think it was probably better than you would have expected going into it. I mean, there, there weren't many names that we heard kind of linked um, to him, even during like what the two weeks there where it was like, yeah, okay, yeah, we're pretty sure he's going to be the head coach, but it's not official yet. Um, you know, a lot of the names that we heard there are now on the staff. I think the one spot is defensive coordinator, right? Where you kind of end up with, what was maybe the third or fourth option or something like that. I mean, they were looking for obviously to, they, they seem to be looking to bring that scheme in that, that seemed to be kind of a priority yeah. for them. Um, but ending up, you know, with a guy that had been around it, but had been uh, only a position coach at this point, that maybe is the one area you're like, okay, might've been able to get a better candidate had they been able to start the process earlier. But uh, outside of that, yeah, I don't think that it really ended up being too much of a factor. 
So big news then earlier today is that Tom Gamble is confirmed to be exiting the organization, which is a little earlier than expected. But did, did you really think, David, that he was going to stay in a senior personnel role, especially with the addition of Adam Peters, who is effectively the number two that we were able to luckily get away from Denver? And the only reason we were able to get him from Denver is because John and uh, John Elway, John Lynch and John Elway were close. And John Elway basically said That's if it easy. wasn't. Yeah, if it wasn't for the fact that he was going to someone like John Lynch, I wouldn't have let him go. And Adam Peters is someone who is, you know, he's another guy who's up and coming in the GM circles. The The line on him was that he was going to be a GM in two or three years anyway. And, and so he's the effectively the, the guy who's going to help John Lynch navigate the intricacies of building an organization. Did you really expect Tom Gamble to sit here and be like, yeah, you know, I was the assistant GM, but now I'm going to be maybe the number three and then maybe the number four if I'm lucky. Did you expect him to stick around? No, not at all. I mean, I, I think maybe, you know, we, we heard talks of, okay, maybe they'll keep some of these guys through the draft just because, uh, you know, they, they didn't really have time to get everything done that they needed to. But especially when you bring, you know, the, the Peters signing is really the big one, right? Because now he's been doing all of that work. He can bring the stuff that he's been working on in Denver, you know, over, and they're not necessarily starting from scratch. So, uh, I, I think that once he was on there and he's going to be kind of, you know, more the the point guy or, or, or the the one B, so to speak. At that point, you don't really need Tom Gamble. You know, you, you kind of get in there, let him handle some of the transition stuff. You know, if it determine if they're going to be keeping uh, any of the scouting staff around and kind of how all that's going to work. You know, you let him assist in that process. But once it comes to time to actually start making decisions about this roster and, and that's coming up here now really soon with. Uh, free agency starting up in a, in a couple of weeks, like makes sense to kind of part ways now and let him go uh, find another job. Well, you also think to yourself too, that the, the 49ers have also hired executive Martin Mayhew mm-hmm. and Martin Mayhew is another guy with GM experience that, you know, he, he again is going to be kind of one of those advisory people I would imagine. Cause I think John Lynch and Adam Peters are going to be the guys that run everything. But I think Martin Mayhew is going to be there really, as as another sounding board and so that those are going to be the the people that i would imagine are going to be close to yeah. john lynch and while i think john would have loved to have keep to have kept tom just to absorb his knowledge and to learn a bit more because it sounds like that's the kind of guy john is I, I think you know what if i'm tom gamble i'm like you know what it's not like i'm hurting for money i'm out uh and yeah. uh, and then go yeah it, it, i mean it makes again it was going to happen at some point um, it just may have happened a little bit earlier than than we were expecting it to. Yeah. So other two stories before we finish up the rundown and get to Shanahan's run game is that one, we've made a free agent acquisition. That's cornerback Kawan Williams. He was signed to a one year deal. He is expected to compete in the slot. He's reunited with his secondary coach. Uh, he had a stint in Cleveland uh, and uh, I guess Jeff Halfley was the coach there as well. And I think Jeff Halfley was the coach at Pitt uh, and tried to recruit. Uh, yeah, something, yeah, he was on the at least on the staff. I don't know if he was like the head coach or what. I forget yeah. the, his exact uh, title there, but yeah, he was one of the guys that helped recruit him. So exactly. So this is going to be another one year rental. I think this is a uh, the the line on him. There was an article on Niners Nation, and and they talked to Dogs by I think it was Dogs by Nature, and they said that he had a, a pretty good solid two years. Had a really down 2016 for whatever reason. Uh, this might be another one of those specials where we get him on the cheap simply because. He had a down year for whatever reason, and maybe this is his bounce back year. Schematically, what this means is that if Jimmy Ward does indeed move to free safety and and we do move to a 4-3 under and we do move to a cover three, 
we're going to need a rangy free safety. And that seems to be Jimmy Ward. That means you need a nickel corner. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of role that Kawan Williams can fit. Yeah, I think you're looking at pretty much him, you know, Will Redmond, uh, assuming that he's healthy and kind of ready to to go and, and get on the field. So those are your guys that, that are going to be likely competing for that slot position if, uh, you know, and, and they may, they, who's to say that they, they're not going to add, you know, another cornerback or two or something like that. But I think right now, based on the roster that we have, those are the two guys that you're targeting for that role, uh, assuming that they do move Ward to safety. And then final story in the rundown is that John, well, I guess we're going to call him Lynchahan. I like Lynchahan. Uh, I, I prefer uh, Shanna Lynch only because Shanahan is clearly the alpha. So I put his name first, uh, but Lynchahan will work. But it flows um, better. It's even like the spelling. It just works like it. It's <laughs> it's almost like Shanahan. You know, we just put Lynch instead of Shan. Lynchahan. Yeah, makes yeah, sense. It's, they it's they the had same. a great discussion. They had an air quotes, great discussion with Cap and left the meeting uh, air quotes excited. So who knows what the hell that means? I mean, I don't think it means anything. I think it means that we are or we are. Cap is still going to opt out because that's the smartest move for him. And honestly, that's probably what the Niners want anyway, because if they bring him back, they probably want to bring him back on a reduced salary. Then I think of the 49, they would owe him if, if they stayed. Uh, and so I think this is nothing but PR in case he comes back so that things can and relationships can become repaired. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly nothing major to take away from it. Um, I will say, though, I've said this on I don't know if we've talked about it here yet. Um, I'm maybe mentioned it at some point, but. I, I continue to think that he is the best option for them in 2017. Like, I think that is the kind of the best of both worlds, essentially, where there's not really a great option for them to find a franchise guy here from the looks of things. So they're going to be patient. Like, I would much rather go with Kaepernick as, as your starter in 2017 than somebody like, you know, even if they bring in a Hoyer or Schaub or, or something like that, which, again, they're yeah, going to need bodies. Yeah, they, they, ha- they, they, have... they have zero quarterbacks if if yeah. Cap opts out. So exactly. they need guys. They're going to sign another quarterback or two. They might even draft somebody on day three or something like that. But um, I, I think Kaepernick is better than some of the uh, crappy names that, you know, you get get with that safe label like the Hoyers and, you know, the Schaubs and those type oh, of guys bro, that bounce bro, around like, bro. You don't think uh, AJ McCarron? You, you're you're not on the AJ McCarron. I can't even finish that sentence. Uh, no, I can't. I can't even Fuck finish that with that. a straight face. <laughs> no, I I want nothing to do with that. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I could pro- we could probably rant the entire time about quarterback position, and all the bullshit that's happening as far yeah. as rumors go. But uh, yeah, I, I think to to sum it up, I think that is the the best option for them. Yeah, that is if that they is can make it happen. Obviously, he's got to want to come back. So. Uh, if that yeah. if that's not there, then none of it matters. But assuming he would be open to it, that's the direction I would like them to go. There was an interview that John Lynch did. Final, final point really quick, because I, I know we've got a lot of stuff to get to for, for the run game. But there was an interview that John Lynch did a few weeks ago when he was on his I Just Got Hired press tour. And he talked about Colin Kaepernick. And he said that he started to build a relationship with him when he did some kind of prep meetings for Fox. And he got to know him. And, and he said, and I think this is almost an exact quote. John Lynch said, I think I would go so far as to say that I consider Colin Kaepernick a friend. Yeah, no, I, and, I remember that. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because even even if that friendship is one sided, John Lynch doesn't seem like a, a, a disingenuous guy. He yeah. doesn't seem like a guy who's going to say, you know, oh, yeah, he's a friend of mine. And, you know, you hear that and you're like, what the 
that guy didn't even know my last name, right? Like he, <laughs> and so I thought that in and of itself was interesting, not because it means anything or is indicative of anything, but just because, you know, at least my impression is that Colin Kaepernick has to feel comfortable in the space that he's in in order to succeed. And, and that's again, just complete, complete conjecture on my part, just based on watching the team. And, and if he does indeed feel comfortable and he does feel like he can get coached, um, then, you know, it could be another situation where he could be set up for success. The whole thing has a, a, a big Alex Smith in 2011 feel to it. Yep. it. It just it really does where it's like, OK, we've been expecting him to move on now. Like this is what everybody thought with Alex Smith. It was like, shit, we're been ready to move on from him for years now. And it, it finally seemed like that was the time. And then it just worked out. The Niners didn't have any better options at the time. And, you know, uh, Smith didn't really have any better options. And I think you could see a similar sort of story play out with this one. All right, so let's get to the meat of the episode, meat and potatoes time. Let's talk about our first installment of what's going to be a good month or so of scheme talk about Kyle Shanahan before we get to the draft and some of the free agency stuff. So it's going to really be Dude, that's a coming lot. up quicker than you think. We're going to get I, I know think we get is. two episodes in and then we're getting free agency. So uh... I'm already just trying to pad time. I'm trying to pad time. <laughs> I'm trying to make this like a Thai dish, a little pad Thai. Um, but that's right. I made the I made the Thai food pun. That's right. It's going to be one of those. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. We took a week <laughs> off. I was in Mexico. It was fun. I watched the Avid Brothers for three shows. It was awesome. Um, but let's talk about Kyle Shanahan's run game. So the foundation of the offense, of everything Kyle Shanahan does, is the outside or wide zone. Now, this is a little different. You might, you might be telling yourself, okay, look, we've been moving towards the zone running scheme for a while now. And, and so what's different? We ran the zone scheme last year, but... Last year under Chip Kelly, it was really a lot of inside zone. And this, this the run game that you're going to see from Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco is going to be an outside or wide zone. It's going to be very, very similar, but there are some differences and there are some things to note about the utilization of the outside or wide zone that we're going to touch on here. So first, a bit of history, because I love history and I think it's fun to talk about. So really, the, the first mainstream college coach to effectively use the modern concept of the zone blocking of zone blocking was Bill Yeoman at Houston. Uh, and this is from Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, which is a great book. If you haven't read it, it kind of outlines some some of the great innovations in football. And one of them is the zone blocking scheme. And it says that it was really Yellman who began running the veer in 1965. Yes, that's a cousin of the inverted veer that we love talking about here. Um, and, and essentially, they're using zone blocking techniques, even if that's not what they were called at that time. Uh, and so there's a whole chapter in that book that I would definitely invite you to read if you're interested on the origin of the zone blocking scheme and where it happened. But then you've got Jack Patera, who coached in Seattle and used a couple of zone blocking plays in the late 70s and early 80s. Because up until really Yelman in Houston in 65, it was all a bunch of man gap schemes. You wanted to overwhelm your opponent. You wanted to run right at them. And it was basically running at them with blunt force. And you had a man on man, hat on hat. And then you've got Yelman. You've got Jack Patera, who coached in Seattle in the 70s and 80s. And then comes this crazy dude named Howard Mudd. And Howard Mudd was really the first one to take his primary run scheme into the NFL and make it and base it around the zone running game. And this was in the mid-80s, the Cleveland Browns. And Howard Mudd, another person who's written a book uh, about the offensive line that I'm reading right now as well. It's mostly like stories and anecdotes, which is pretty good. But the dude's pretty much crazy. Um, like that, That's pretty much the rap on Howard Mudd is that he is, he is a technician and he is detailed. And he is also insane. Yeah, I've, uh, I've and, got that book on my list. It's uh, I th or actually I think I got it on Kindle. Yeah, the view from the O line, right? Yeah, is is the one you're talking about. Yeah, uh, heard 
heard good things about it. I'm excited to read there's, it. There's a couple. Actually, Joe Staley is one of the people that's featured in there. Um, and he's got some really interesting stories about his first days at camp with the 49ers. And so it's uh, even if you're only interested in 49ers nuggets of information, there's some good ones in there. Nick Mangold has some good stories. It's, uh, it's good to really just get in, inside the brain of an offensive lineman. Um, but then you've got Jim McNally, who stole what Howard Mudd was doing and brought it to the Bengals. And then, of course, you've got Anthony Munoz and Icky Woods. These are the people who were made famous, really, by the the zone scheme that Jim McNally brought to the Bengals. And so you, you kind of see the evolution, and then eventually you get to Alex Gibbs. Alex Gibbs is pretty much what we would say the godfather of what we're going to see in San Francisco with the Shanahan offense. Alex Gibbs, is he was the offensive line coach for the Broncos under Mike Shanahan. And this is the pairing. It was in Denver where you get the pairing of the zone blocking scheme and the West Coast offense passing concepts that Mike Shanahan really perfected in San Francisco before he became the head coach. And that's what is at the core of Kyle Shanahan's offense today. Alex Gibbs is famous for saying that you you really run one play and, and that is the outside zone and you run that play over and over and over. But if you want to be good at this play, it is not just one of the many runs in your repertoire. It is the only run that you execute and you have to run it as basically your only run play in order to execute it with success. So Alex Gibbs, famous offensive line coach, of course, with um, you know the Redskins and then you've got him with the Broncos. And, and that's really the core of what you've got here is a marriage of the zone blocking running scheme with West Coast offense passing concepts um, and, and you know from Houston to Cincinnati to Denver and now to San Francisco. It's a long journey for a base passing concept that can be and has proven to be very effective in the NFL over the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Man, it's crazy to think that like that Terrell Davis was was going crazy like 20 years ago. More than, I know. More Hall than of Famer. Ago. Hall um, of Famer Terrell Davis. What the shit? We're old. Um, anyway, so <laughs> I think I, I, so I think the next thing, right, is is we want to sort of establish um, just some basic rules for like, what is zone blocking, right? It sounds pretty straightforward, but the, I think the easiest way to think about it is, is it's really just the structure that offensive linemen use to determine who they're going to block. So you have some schemes that are more man-based, right? The, the gap schemes that uh, they're, they're typically referred to. This is your power, your counter, your traps, where there is a specific man on the defense based on their alignment that you are responsible for. You're blocking this particular defender. Um, zone is, is a, I like it sounds, it, it, it's really more responsible for, you know, kind of a gap or a, a, an area to the play side of the run. So it, it this, the structure allows them to, to kind of know how they're passing things off, how they're going to determine who blocks who, which can change based on the movements of the defense and, and where they align. So the starting point for all of that and how they determine this is really they they get the line, they see what the defense is doing, and they ask themselves, am I covered or am I uncovered? Covered meaning they have somebody at the defensive line level, right? Right on the line of scrimmage that is over them, that is covering them up. So it doesn't matter if there's not a defensive lineman there, but they get a linebacker, you know, five yards back. That's an uncovered lineman. So this is the first question that they're going to start with. Am I covered now, David, am I uncovered? What if you've got someone who is kind of on a shade, right? Maybe they're playing a three technique, if you know what that is. Or maybe they're playing, you know, inside leverage or outside leverage. Are you still covered if someone's playing you not right head up like a two gap, you know, kind of four technique would? But if they're kind of shading to one side or the other, is that still technically considered you as covered? 
Definitely. So it doesn't, doesn't have to be head up. It's either shade, inside, outside shade. Um, it, and it's really going to depend a, a lot on the play side, too. So it's if, if he's shading the play side gap. So, for instance, if you're running to the right-hand side, the offense, and he's in the gap to your right-hand side, yes, you're, you are still covered at that point. So absolutely shades count. Um, and if you're covered, so kind of moving on to the next step, right? If you're covered, there's not a whole lot of zoning involved. You're going to block that guy that's over the top of you. Like, uh, and, and it really kind of turns into somewhat of a, a man type blocking scheme at that point. The zoning element really comes from the guys that are uncovered. Everybody, regardless of whether you're running outside zone or inside zone, everything kind of involves a, a step to the play side first. An inside zone, as we'll get to, that's going to be a little bit more of a a vertical step, whereas outside zone, you're really trying to get horizontal and and stretch the defense wide, but you're still stepping to the play side. And if you're uncovered, you're going to help your buddy out. The guy that's next to you that is covered, you're going to kind of help double team him. And then you're going to peel off and get a linebacker at the second level. So that's something regardless, again, of whether you're doing outside or inside zone, those are some of the basic framework, you know, that you're looking at for determining who's going to block who that's the assignments are the same. The technique is different. And so what is it about the technique with the outside zone, right? So again, mentioned it uh, just a minute ago, but they are, the, the offensive line is trying to move laterally and the, one of two things are going to happen. Either the goal and, and, and kind of the, the, the intention to begin with is they want to pin those defenders inside, right? They want to outflank them, pin them back inside so the running back can get the outside and be free. If that doesn't happen though, and a lot of times like when you, when you try to reach a defender like that, right, you're trying to, to get on the outside of him and pin him back in. It causes the defender to, to kind of almost overreact in a way and really try to, to, to press to get outside. And so if that happens and you can't reach those defenders, well, then you're going to switch gears a little bit and you're just going to run them to the sideline. And those are kind of the two basic outcomes that you have for your offensive lineman. You know, the, the, again, the goal you want to get your helmets outside. So if you're thinking that three technique shade that you mentioned, right? So that's outside shoulder of the guard. Say we're running that direction. He wants to get his helmet outside, helmet between the defender and the sideline and pin him back in. That cuts off the pursuit. That kind of gets everything uh, piling up back behind them. And that gives the back a lane to get through. So that's goal number one. But again, it, it, it's not a big deal or not, not a huge deal necessarily. If you can't make that happen, you just got to switch gears run him to the sideline wide so the back has a cutback lane. You know, Pat Nadruzzi has a book about coaching defense at, at the collegiate level, and he talks a lot about how you have to stop the run as a group. And, and we've talked about run fits in the past and how you kind of have to create a, a line or a wall of defenders to prevent a running back from, from gaining yards. And what the zone does, what, what David's just described, where either you get what you want and, and you kind of wall them off, or you don't and you just keep stretching them, what that does is it creates breaks and natural inequities in the line that the defense is trying to hold. And that then allows the running back to do what we're going to talk about here in a minute, uh, which is to break right through that line. So it really is a scheme that, that's kind of ingenious in its simplicity, right? Because it's like, do I get what I want? Yes, then, then I will help to succeed. Do I not get what I want? Well, then I have a really basic reaction to that that can also help me succeed as long as I've got a running back who can key off of it. Yeah, that's the one thing. I mean, you mentioned the the complexity in, in terms of, you know, if this is going to be your running scheme, you really have to devote all of your time and resource to this. So it's it's this weird thing where it's actually really simple to teach. You know, it's it's not a, a complex thing, but it is 
difficult to master the technique to do this effectively. And a lot of times coaches, uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to commit to it. I mean, I remember um, Ben Muth, who was a former Stanford offensive lineman, writes a great column for football outsiders on offensive line play. Um, the outside zone is is essentially his favorite run play. Like it's he just loves it. He thinks it's the best run play in football. But he says that you, you know, really to do it well, you have to commit about 65 to 75 percent of your practice time to running and executing this play. Um, you know, again, Alex Gibbs would probably go. He He basically says. Uh, you need to run wide zone and tight zone. And if you want to run anything else, don't talk to me. Like it's you, those that, two that plays sounds almost like an exact those quote. two plays only um, and, and really commit to it. So that's where you kind of lose some coaches and, and you know, why not everybody can run this effectively is because while simple to teach, very difficult to execute and kind of master the techniques to run this really well. So you've got an offensive line that is now kind of stretching and moving and getting everyone either misaligned or walling them off, depending on whether they're able to meet their objective or not meet their objective. Now, this really happens. What, what this does is it creates a couple of reads for the running back. And the running back, really their charge is to speed through the hole and, and emphasis on through. They want to speed through the hole, not speed to the hole. This is where you get the idea of the one-cut runner. This is the type of runner, quite frankly, that Carlos Hyde is. And this is what you see with really, really good zone running backs. This is what Terrell Davis did exceptionally well when he was with Denver, which is where you are, you're watching that line, and once you see that hole based on a couple of rules, you go right through it. You're not Kevin Barlow. You're not wiggling your head behind the line of scrimmage. You were going right. That's right. I said Kevin Barlow. Remember that? <laughs> Remember that? That's, I mean, that was not. Yeah, but I don't want to. It was Kevin Barlow, and he had like he would like wiggle his head a lot, and then you got a lot of Frank Gore. <laughs> and I'm gonna go ahead and remember a lot of Frank Gore. Uh, but you hit the initial aiming point for the running back on the wide zone is the outside of the tight end, and if you're not running to the tight end side, it's really where the tight end would be if there were a tight end in that formation. So. You're looking at a really, really wide part of the line, whether or not there's a tight end there. You're looking at the outside of typically the widest part of the formation. And when you make, when you're running towards that outside, that outside hole, the running back has three choices and they're reading from outside in. They read bounce, bang, or bend. Say it with me now. Bounce, bang, bend. It's fun (laughs) to say. I like alliteration and it makes a lot of sense. I like mnemonics too. So... You're looking at the outside of that tight end. And this is all moving, right? Because like, remember, we're, it's not just like everyone stays still for you. It's like you're moving to a location and you're reading the edge man or the end man on the line of scrimmage. And whether that's you know a 4-3 defensive end or a 3-4 outside linebacker, it doesn't really matter. You're reading the edge guy on the line of scrimmage. And if you are looking to that outside and you and your line is able to do what they want to do, which is pin him inside, right? They, they get their reach block. They're able to pin that edge man. Then you bounce that outside. You get outside, you read your numbers, and you basically say, I'm gone. But what if your lineman isn't able to successfully get that block and you see color in the hole? Then you move inside and you go bang. That's that one cut, go right up the field, get exactly to where I need to go because your outside isn't there because the defender maintained his leverage. But by him maintaining his leverage, that means you've got a little bit, hopefully, of space inside. But let's say you see color in the hole on the outside as well. 
or color in the hole on, on the inside. And you're like, all right, can't bounce it. Can't go right up into that hole and bang it. So I'm going to bend it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I didn't know if you were going to actually say it, but yeah. I didn't even. We, so we did what's it. funny is I wish I would have written that one down. That just came out naturally. That was a natural. That's, we have to drink now at this point. I mean, we have to subscribe <laughs> to the rules of our own drinking game. Cheers, folks. <laughs> so let's say that you can't bang it. <laughs> so you've got to bend it back. And this is the cutback. This, and these are those super wide cutback lanes that you saw. Devonta Freeman uh, had a big one of these in the Super Bowl where you just see the entire line get washed across. And all of a sudden, you see this massive gulf open up in what was the middle of the field. But really, that's the cutback lane. And so that's the running back's read. You've got bounce if your offensive line meets their goal and is able to wall off that edge man. If they're not, then you try to, to read that middle hole and you see if you can bang it. And then if not, and you see color in that hole, then you bend it to the cutback. And that's the read. Bounce, bang, bend. Bounce, bang, bend. It sounds simple, sure. But it's really, really difficult to execute because it is effectively in the same way that, that, that you have options for a quarterback on offense where you're trying to make the defense wrong at every turn. That's effectively what this is in a running play. It's like depending on what they're doing, depending on whether we're able to succeed, depending on what's happening in snap moments live while we're blocking – I'm going to change the hole that I hit. And that's why if this play is run successfully, it's very, very difficult to stop. And this is where Bobby Turner really comes into play, right? Like uh, Alex Gibbs always talked about, like you, you really have to get the running back to follow these reads, right? They, they have to buy in. This was a big thing uh, with Marshawn Lynch, right? When he went to Seattle and, and you had Tom Cable there who, again, is kind of falls off one of these branches for the, the zone blocking scheme. And that's what they've been doing in Seattle. And, and they really had to get him to buy into like, look, you need to if you run it the way that we tell you to run it, you will have success. Right. And, and you have to get backs to buy into that and, and to make these reads. And I, I thought it was funny. So I was reading through some Alex Gibbs quotes as was uh, as I was preparing, kind of getting getting stuff together for this. Um, and there was a, a comment that he had about, you know, if the back doesn't make the right read, what does he do? And, and it was kind of his thought process that the offensive linemen actually police the back. They're the ones that kind of enforce like, hey, you made the wrong fucking read. You need to, to do do it the way that it's designed to do. However, the one exception that he had to that is if he gets more than five yards. So if he makes the wrong read and he gets more than five yards, he gets a first down on it. He tells his offensive linemen, shut the fuck up and get back in the huddle. Like, <laughs> because you know what? It's more important that you know, the, they, they get positive yardage and then they keep kind of progressing towards getting first downs. Then they get on the back about making, you know, an incorrect read here and there. So I thought that was was kind of interesting. But it really is, uh, you know, Bobby Turner is going to be a big influence here because those backs have to buy in. They have to be able to do it the way that it's designed. So one minor correction, is, as you were talking about Alex Gibbs, I think I mentioned Gibbs uh, and Washington. Uh, and I think I may have confused Joe and Alex for a second there. Because uh, I don't know that Alex coached uh, in Washington. I think he went to San Diego before he went to uh, the Broncos. So that's my B. We're, we're in podcast correcting. Uh, unlike the last podcast we did, which apparently we flip-flopped I need to, uh, Gus Bradley. I, like, I've been kind of wanting to go back and listen to that because... <laughs> and I don't even remember which one we said and which one was they were saying that... We, I think it was... It was People Gus thought Bradley. we meant Dan Quinn and we were saying Correct. Gus Bradley. Correct. But with all of the Robert Sala stuff, we were talking about Gus Bradley. It was Jacksonville. 
Like I'm, I, I'm at least half of those references were actually supposed to be about Gus Brown. Look, I'm going to go ahead and chalk it up to just, you know, ambiguously bald white guys that in my brain <laughs> and somehow are like their wires got crossed. They look kind of the same. They coach the same scheme. You know, we'll call them, I don't know, Gus Quinn um, or, oh or Dan Bradley <laughs> or something like that. You know, another ambiguously white name. Um. Uh, I really and we'll just... like I never go back and listen to to the show because it's just too weird to like hear your own voice and stuff. But um, I've been really tempted to go back and like, man, I, I swear those references were right. But maybe not. I don't know. So, so that's what the the wide zone is. We've talked about, you know, the history of how it was developed. And you're talking about 1965 in Houston all the way through Alex Gibbs being the offensive line coach with Denver. We've talked about really the basics and the assignments whether or not linemen are covered or uncovered and them and that dictating who they block and, and whether they and what their assignment is, right? Where they want to reach and get to the outside and wall off the edge defender or what happens if they don't and how the running back will read and bounce, bang, or bend depending on what the offensive line does. But David, what can you do off of this base run? Because this isn't the only run that we see Kyle Shanahan run. Despite what Gibbs says, you do see a different you know, a bevy of runs that he's unleashed that teams on teams at various times. So what are the supplementary runs, David, that you'll see off of the wide zone game? So, I mean, inside zone is, is the most obvious one. That one's not going anywhere. And, and uh, again, with inside zone, it's technique that changes, not assignment. So all of the rules that we were talking about before with outside zone in terms of covered, uncovered, um, you know, creating double teams, having guys peel off to the second level, like all of those sort of things still apply here. The difference is inside zone is more of a downhill run. So it's it's more about creating this vertical push, moving defenders backwards rather than moving them horizontally. Um, and, and that's going to kind of create these creases, these vertical creases for the back to get through. So um, again, technique, not assignment changes with inside zone. And that's going to be, I mean, th- those, those two runs kind of pair together and they really complement each other really well. So when you're a zone-based team, you're going to run both. Some teams pick one or the other. In this case, outside zone is the primary. Inside zone is going to be the kind of the complementary there. And the other variation of of off of the zone runs you're going to see is what's usually referred to as like the split zone, which from an offensive line perspective, nothing is changing. Everything that we talked about, and you can do this with inside zone or outside zone, all of that stuff stays exactly the same. The one difference, the one change that you're making is having a blocker that starts on the play side. And this is usually going to be a tight end, but, you know, you could uh, motion a receiver across. You could, you know, if you have like an H-back, fullback type, you could do it with him. Um, Somebody from the play side of the formation is coming back across to the backside and kicking out that last edge defender. A lot of times that backside edge defender, so if you think of the guy that would be red in like a zone read, right, when we were talking about Chip Kelly stuff, that same player that's on the backside a lot of times he goes unblocked, you know, in these schemes, especially when you're running under center and you're just kind of like trusting that he's not going to be able to really pursue the play and, and catch up with the back um, from that position. But this is kind of brings more of a design cutback element to it. So you're going to kick that player out and really split the defense in half. Right. So you still get everybody going wide, going to the outside with the offensive lineman. And then you're creating this divide by bringing a tight end, bringing a fullback across the formation and kicking that edge defender out. So that helps explain the name, the split zone. But the the thing that I think is really neat about the split zone is that it helps you open up 
a different array of options off of either play action game or a couple of other fun things. So what the Falcons would do a lot with the split zone is they would run it a couple of times to show that look and pull the tight end across the formation and block the backside defender. Now, what you would also see is you would also see a play action fake off of split zone where you see Matt Ryan make that wide zone fake and the tight end cut across the formation and look like he's going to block the edge defender and then have the tight end just kind of move around the edge defender and leak out into the flat. Matt Ryan goes on a naked boot and you put that edge defender in conflict without blocking him. And if he stays with the tight end, then you kind of move to a second read. Or if you're maybe a quarterback who can run like Colin Kaepernick, you take the green grass hats in front of you. Or if the quarterback, if the edge defender comes towards the quarterback, then the tight end is wide open and you get easy money. Unless, of course, you've got someone coming across the field like a Julio Jones that you can throw the ball to. And if you're within, I don't know, two garage doors of him, uh, he's going to go ahead and catch it. So it, it does. It, this is, a, you know, it, it's the base run. And this is what we mean by the base run. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about some of the ways that you can key off of this in later episodes. But that's just one way that you can use the outside zone and then a variation of that called the split zone and then a play, a play action pass off that that builds layers of play calling that keeps people, uh, it keeps defenses really on their heels because they're not sure what's coming at them, even if they've seen the same look multiple times. Right. And we talked about this during the the kind of the tendency episode, right? The last time we, we looked at some of the, uh, some of the data and some of the tendencies that Shanahan's shown in his previous stops. And that was a big thing, right? We know play action is going to be a big part of the passing game and, and, it's really tough with these zone runs, especially that outside zone, especially the split zone, right? It, it looks everything up to the point where the quarterback pulls the ball and all of a sudden he's breaking outside and, and kind of uh, on that bootleg and, and looking for a, a receiver. Like everything's the same. You know, it looks the same for the defense. It really messes with uh, a lot of your defenders like run pass keys. And so you can really create some easy throws for your quarterback and some big plays for your offense um, play actioning off of these runs. One of my favorite variations that I saw on tape this year for the Falcons was the toss read or the shovel read uh, play that uh, you, Chris Brown wrote an article about it ahead of the national championship game because it was going to be a run that was featured heavily in that game. And this to me shows a couple things about Kyle Shanahan. One, yes, the outside zone is the base of his running game, but he's not so wed to it and he's, so dog, he's not so dogmatic about it that it that he won't introduce new wrinkles and new fun things into the running game, which is, I think, important for any offensive play caller and any play designer. You have to stay current. You have to stay fresh. And he ran the toss read in. He actually ran a fake toss toss read shovel. The the first red zone series of this season against Tampa Bay. And this was a play that wasn't even that didn't wasn't even making the rounds uh, until late last year in college because it's an evolution of of what really Cam Newton did with Auburn and, and the inverted veer. And basically, the the toss read is a way to widen the defense and and kind of get you some of the same outside pressure on that zone defender with a quarterback running inside that you'd get with someone like a Cam Newton. And the the shovel read is a way of really keying off that same run, but not putting your quarterback in danger. So for those of been, for those of you who've been listening to us for a long time, you know that the inverted veer. Um, is a way where the quarterback really is the inside runner on an option play on the veer where you're reading the play side defender. And Cam Newton does this very well. He still does it in Carolina. But to run that play successfully, you've got to be comfortable with your quarterback being an inside runner. 
And not all quarterbacks are, you know, 6'5", 250 pounds and can take punishment like Cam Newton can. So what do you do? And what have some what have some teams began to do? Well, Penn State did this where they basically took a, a tight end or a fullback. Oh, it was Pitt. Yeah. Sorry. Where they took a tight end or a fullback and they ran them inside on a shovel pass. And so your quarterback does the same action as, as an inverted veer. But instead of running them, or instead of running the quarterback inside, they pitch the ball uh, to the pitch man on the inside and you still get the same action. You still create the same pressure. You still create the same conflict, but you're not exposing your quarterbacks to hits. This is exactly what the Falcons did with Matt Ryan. Like the, the, and this is where you're thinking like, oh, this is just college offense. It's just a gimmick. It's like, no, this stuff works. And Kyle Shanahan knows it works. And he is stressing defenses out. And he would run the toss read and the shovel read in the red zone against multiple teams with great success. This is one of his go-to red zone plays. And, and so this is, again, a, a play that you can use because you're still using zone blocking and you're still using the fundamentals of what the offensive line does, but you're just reading a play side defender. So you're gaining a numbers advantage in the way that you're zone blocking to one side. And rather than exposing your quarterback to hits, you're now adding a shovel option, which means that you still get all the benefits of a veer of a play side read, but you're not exposing your quarterbacks to hits. I mean, it's really just, it's fascinating stuff. It's awesome. And it's great to see it's going to be great to see some of these new wrinkles in the run game here in San Francisco. The the really fun thing about that is that you're taking two very old blocking schemes and kind of combining them, right? Like you have the veer element, which is like we talked about when we're going uh, with kind of the history of, of the zone running, right? Like that was the veer in the sixties, right? You kind of had those zone running elements there, but you optioned off a play side defender. And so you get that. And then you get, you know, power blocking scheme that's been around basically since single wing days, you know, so it's it's like these two very old blocking schemes, but it's a, a modern adaption of those schemes and kind of being able to combine them. So uh, it's funny, yeah, the, the gimmick stuff. And, and when you see a lot of these things happen in college, that's a label that gets applied to it. Chip Kelly still is dealing with that, even though it's kind of just a ridiculous label at this point. Um, but it's it's these very old school you know, concepts and principles that you're just, you know, kind of repackaging into this modern take. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. It really is because, I mean, these are some of my favorite plays, right? Like I love the inverted veer. I love the veer. I love the zone read. And, and these are all really like minor tweaks and minor options that you add and you layer on to some runs that can really make them dangerous because they provide some different looks to execute some of the same concepts. So you know, it, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think, to watch this running game. But this really, I think the question that is on everyone's mind, it's at least on mine, and, and I know, David, it's on yours, is that's great and all that this scheme is coming to San Francisco. And it's great that, you know, you've got some history in, in the, the scheming and you've got some, uh, you know, the, the acronyms or, or mnemonics for your running backs to remember. But what the hell does this mean for the personnel in San Francisco? How does our current roster fit? with what Kyle Shanahan wants to do with his running game. Because it's all fine and well that he wants to that he wants to implement these runs, but do we actually have the personnel to succeed? Um it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that we do, but I think it's the the first thing that we really have to do, right, is is sort of establish some traits that you're looking for. Like what do offensive linemen uh, what traits do they need to possess in order to be successful in this type of scheme? And so 
I think the the first caveat that you throw out there is there's not as much of a difference between what you're looking for in in zone linemen and kind of gap scheme linemen is is I think a lot of people think right like when you go back to those Denver offenses um it was they were very light like they, a lot of their I think they they went a while without even a single lineman like over 300 pounds and so they, it kind of got this label that oh if they're if they're kind of undersized a little bit and they have a little bit better athleticism they're a zone uh lineman and if they're you know, these big 320 330 pounders um then they're they're definitely gap scheme lineman and kind of that was the distinction and, and it really didn't go much further than that and while there is a little bit of truth there's not it's not as big of a difference, I think, as people think it is. Like we we um, ended up, I think Niners Nation uh, did an interview with Latrell's Bentley last year, and this was one of the questions that we asked him was kind of, hey, is are the differences between these two schemes and in terms of the type of alignment you're looking for really is is big of a difference is is we think they are on the outside, and and he was kind of a resounding no, um, and and so you can get away with it, right? If you have bigger guys. I think what it really comes down to is they do need to have movement skills. So the size isn't really the big differentiator there. It's not that all linemen under 300 pounds are going to be zone linemen. All guys that are, you know, 320 and above are going to be gap linemen. Um, But they do need to have, you know, a certain amount of movement skills. Because, again, with that outside zone, you're stretching everything. You're kind of getting everybody on the same track, moving outside. Um, the big thing really from an athleticism standpoint though, is that I think is even more important maybe is the change of direction element, right? Like you have to be able to, while you're on that track, if all of a sudden a defender crosses your face and tries to get inside of you, you have to be able to redirect and, and kind of cut that guy off and, and pin him inside, which is not an easy thing to do. So you do have to have, you know, athleticism is still kind of prioritized over power in the zone scheme. Um, and that change of direction, uh, direction ability is going to be important, but I think that the gaps there aren't as wide as maybe a lot of people commonly think they are. Yeah. I, I always think of someone like Tyron Smith and that dude is huge. That dude's big and his listed weight is 308. He's six five, three Oh eight. I bet you he probably plays at about three twenty, and he moves like a jungle cat. That dude is just, he is live <laughs> and he is spry and he is quick and he is just scary when he's on that line. And that guy could play. I mean, he plays, obviously, the, the, the Cowboys play a lot of zone running as well. And he executes that with success because, again, it's the movement and it's the change of direction. Uh, and, it's as, and it's his athleticism, irrespective of whether you're walking around at 340 or whether you're at you know 290. Athleticism is athleticism. And that's what you need in order to make some of the reach blocks to get to the outside edge and do some of the things that the zone blocking scheme demands. Yeah, I mean, on that same line, right, Travis Frederick uh, is a guy that, like, when you look at some of the scouting reports on him at the time that he was drafted, like, uh, not a lot of people were saying that, yeah, he's a standout zone lineman. He's a guy that's really going to excel there. And then, obviously, uh, he's, you know, maybe one of the best, him and Alex Mack are, like, the best centers in football. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, you can get some different body types in there. It really comes down to those movement skills. That, unfortunately, though, is something that I have concerns about when it comes to the current 49ers offensive line. So when you look at the guys right now under contract, it's basically the same group that we had last year, minus Tiller. Tiller is the only one uh, who is not currently under contract. Um, so you're you're really dealing with the same group. I think the, the obvious guys that do have those sort of movement skills, I mean, Joe Staley is going to be fine. Uh, that's not an issue at all. Zane Beatles is an interesting thing because I, I, I think uh, 
in a vacuum, he's sort of a he's a fit for a zone running scheme, but he's also just not a good player. So that's <laughs> I know that you're a fan of Zane uh, tap the leg Beatles. So so that's uh, sort of a problem. Um, I, I think the big issues really get when you when you move over to the right side, right? I, I think it's Trent Brown. It's honestly, and I'm willing to give it a shot. I'm not like making any sort of hard determination at this point, but I, I'm a little worried about Josh Garnett too, because Josh Garnett was a guy that, you know, when you looked again at the draft and, and a lot of things that you pointed out with him were he was a great puller. He was great in space on, you know, cause he, he kind of just like built up speed and plowed dudes over and like, you know, had these crazy, you know, blocks where he just demolished guys. Um, the problem is the change of direction with him. He's not the most, so he can get going. And again, he can, he can move well in a straight line, but it's that change of direction ability that I don't know that he has, or at least that I haven't seen consistently on tape with him. He it very like at Stanford, this was a big problem. Um, it was something that you saw a little bit on tape this year that he will get off balance easily. Right. So he gets moving and kind of builds up steam in that one direction. And then if he has to change off that course at all, he kind of gets off balance he ended up on the ground a lot at Stanford because of that. And so I, I'm a little concerned there. You know, I, I think he's a I think he's a smart guy. I think he's somebody that's going to work hard at the technique there. And and I, I'm certainly not ruling out a possibility of him doing well in this scheme. But but I do have concerns based on what we've seen on tape. Um, Trent Brown, I, I have major concerns about. I don't think he has the movement skills for this at all. Well, before we get to Trent Brown, let's talk a bit about Joshua Garnett because you, you can kind of see both sides of that coin, and you mentioned it. He is someone who's good in space. Usually people who are good in space, whether they are wide receivers, whether they're running backs, or whether they are, or whether they are offensive linemen, are usually people that you would regard as, as having some semblance of athleticism. You, you can't generally be good in space. You can't run out and track people down if you don't have the kind of athleticism that you could easily see translating to moving laterally and, and you know, tracking, tracking people that you need to block. But on the flip side of that, you, you know, we've talked about P-Spark and Spark before. And it, for those of you that are unfamiliar, uh, P-Spark is an aggregate number that helps indicate athleticism that was pioneered by Nike and it's adopted by uh, Schneider and Carroll in Seattle. Uh, they're big P-Spark guys, which is a positionally adjusted spark. And there is a, a site that calculates all the spark scores. Uh, and our own Joshua Garnett, amongst his draft class in 2016, uh, amongst guard centers and tackles, did not score very well in P-Spark, which would indicate that he's not terribly athletic as compared to his peers. Um, he ranked basically um, in the 29th percentile of, his, of the NFL for his athletic scores which means that seven out of 10 linemen are more athletic than he is, which does not bode well for the athleticism that you think you might need for something like a zone blocking scheme. So I think that the, at least based on raw numbers, right, the, the, the fear, the concern is valid. Um, I think based on what I see on film, I, I see a little bit of hope, but I could see Garnett having a bit of trouble in this scheme despite the fact that he's a first rounder. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I think this is one area um, we're going to get into free agency stuff and kind of the the general approach we think they should take throughout free agency in the offseason here uh, in a couple of weeks once we wrap up the passing game and, and everything with Shanahan next week. But uh, I, I think offensive line is potentially an area where it would be smart to to spend a little bit of money. Again, 
I, I'm certainly not one. I, I don't want them to go out and make these sort of drastic changes just because they have the cap space to make them. It needs, you know, they they need to do it right. They need to kind of go through the process, make this a, a slow rebuild, do it through the draft, all of those sort of things. Um, but I, I think offensive line is potentially an area where I would like to see a little bit of turnover. I don't know that they have the guys that you would like to see to, to really be able to run this at even a competent level. So I, I would expect them to go after a couple of guys. There are a few guys from what I've seen so far um, that, that I think could be, you know, decent fits in there. And they, they've got some zone guys that are going to be out on the market. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's the one area. If, I'm, if I had to pick a position for them to really target in free agency and maybe spend a little bit of that cap space, this would be the spot. I'll give you and the listeners one guess as to who, whom, depending is the best P-Spark athlete on the roster right now. Offensive lineman, not all-around athlete. Of the offensive well, this is only going to go have. back a couple years, right? So, Yeah, yeah, this is only going to go back to like 2013. So I, I don't know what Joe Staley's, yeah. you know, P, what his P-Spark score is. I would imagine that it's high considering it was a former tight end. But, um, you know, let, let's think of the players you've got. You know, you've got, I'm, guess, I'm not even going to name the players. I'm going to yeah. go ahead and leave it up to you. What do you think? I'm going to guess Marcus Martin. Uh, okay, so I don't know his off the top. Uh, let me look it up just to make sure that I'm not wrong. But I'm going to go ahead and just lay it out here. It's Alex Balducci, oh. former defensive tackle, okay. Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that makes it. Yeah, I doubt Martin. Uh, yeah, that, I, I, would, I don't him. think Martin. I don't think Martin's up there. I'm gonna look him up real quick because I'm gonna let you finish. But <laughs> I'm gonna just go ahead and say that Alex Balducci has the greatest Peace Park score of all time. No, uh, he. <laughs> He's in the 78th percentile of defensive linemen. Uh, so that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. He's almost a full yeah. – uh, his, his Z score is, is almost at 1.0. It's 0.8. Um, and, and that's, of course, in his draft class. So let me let – me, I'll, I'll see if I can find Marcus Martin's P-Spark score. Yeah, I but, don't even remember but, if he was in – because when he was drafted in, what, 2014? Yeah, and to look at the 2014 stuff, I'm going to have to look at it in, in another location. I can yeah. find it, but let me yeah. give me some time. I think this is – you know, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the the power structure between Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch and, and what it matters and what it means. And um, John Lynch was recently on the Tim Kawakami podcast, and he talked about how even though he still he has control of the 90 and he has control of free agency, all of his moves are still subject to the approval of the head coach. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, His I don't know veto what, how, power. Yeah. I mean, who knows yeah. if that's like the way he was describing all of that. Like it's so convoluted. It makes but, you but wonder I think, if it's even there, like or if it was just something no. that he kind of made up. That's like, yeah, this is how we're going to kind of approach it. But I genuinely know, I don't, don't, know, I don't know, but I don't know either. But uh, but what I think is interesting, though, is that this is the the idea that you do need to have an alignment between coaches and scouts to find the types of players that fit your scheme is is kind of a big deal. It is actually important because right now I think what we're seeing with the offensive line is not necessarily that you have a bet a, a whole truckload of terrible players because I do think Trent Brown is and can be a good player and a yeah. starter in this league. Yeah. I do think Andrew Tiller is a starting right guard for 15 of the 32 NFL franchises right now. I think Daniel Kilgore is a starter, a solid center. But all of these players were drafted for more of a big power mauler gap scheme. 
and now you're moving to a different system and, and you it's not that they're bad players. It's not that they're trash or garbage. It's just that they may not be able to do the things that you need them to do to execute this running game successfully. Yeah, I mean, it's it's most players in the league and, and you have kind of, you know, it, it's it's really that bell curve, right? Like you look at the guys that are on the extremes, like in, in I'm talking positive extreme here. So there are your special players that that are kind of scheme transcendent, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing offensively, like they're going to be able to succeed and going to be able to fit within that system. Those players are the, the, the very few of them out there that are capable of doing that. Most of the guys that you're seeing in the middle of that bell curve that make it to the NFL, it really their the, their success is going to be dependent on kind of the environment that they're in, right? The scheme that they're in, how well that aligns with their strengths and weaknesses, um, you know, the coaching staff that they have, the the players that they have around them, all of those sort of things. And so it's not a knock necessarily on, on some of these guys. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm as high on some of these offensive linemen in particular uh, as a lot of people are that, that have, are kind of, uh, you know, following the Niners closely. I am a little more skeptical, I think, when it comes to those guys. But I, again, I, I think there are some solid starters there in the right scheme. I don't think this is the right scheme for them. They're, they're going to, I think, struggle to, to really succeed yeah. with that outside zone. Incidentally, Marcus Martin uh, doesn't have a full peace spark, but it was not good. Um, he was, as far as I can tell, at least 13th or 15th among centers alone when it came to peace spark. Uh, and so in 2014, uh, it, the, the, when Zach Whitman was putting this stuff together at field goals, he, uh, he broke apart tackles, guards, and centers. Uh, and later, he kind of merged them all together. So at the point at which he's 13th or, or 15th or so among centers... Chances are he'd probably in the 50s or 70s amongst all offensive linemen. So yeah, I, re- I really Martin's- chose that uh, based on your reaction, like the the way that you kind of like you're never gonna guess. I'm like, man, I bet it's yeah. somebody that sucks. Yeah, Marcus Martin, of course, the first one that jumped to mind with that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. fair point, Marcus Martin, human <laughs> turnstile, human turnstile. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, it, so we haven't even talked about the importance of center. Let's talk about Daniel Kilgore for a second. I know we've. We've got to get to the call to action, and it's going to be a good one. Uh, and we've got to get to one other position for the running game, uh, talking about uh, bounce, banging, or bending, because that's always fun. I mean, let's just, right now, Carlos Hyde. Carlos Hyde's going to be fine, guys. Don't yeah, worry, don't he's worry going about to be good. Carlos Hyde. This is a zone running guy. Like, this is what he does. He is better at zone running than he is at gap running. Uh, when we talk about, you know, like one cut, one cut run up field, he's, he's okay. He's the least of your worries right now. The only thing you should be worried about when it comes to Carlos Hyde is whether or not the dude's going to stay healthy. Yeah. Um, they like will almost certainly add a couple of other running backs this offseason, though. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, Drone and Harris are both free agents. I, I'm really not expecting either of them to come back. Um, or maybe that's more of a, a hope because I want them to just get rid of guys that were here we're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna sign patrick demarco i know it <laughs> i think uh i think that mike davis is is a potential cut candidate you know maybe not early but but certainly when it comes down to you know getting out of the 75 53 man roster cuts uh in in training camp there i i wouldn't be surprised to see him go so I, they're going to need some guys i would uh expect them to you know maybe pick up somebody in free agency i would be very surprised if they didn't draft somebody on day two day three um, you know who I'm kind of getting a little bit of a draft crush on? Mm. Christian McCaffrey. I mean, and, yeah, and not, not and not because and not because he's like, oh, Stanford guy. Oh my God, and McCaffrey, me, me, me. Nah, dude. 
I'm imagining Ed McCaffrey and McCaffrey. Geez, I'm already calling him Ed. Uh, I'm imagining Christian McCaffrey as Tevin Coleman in this offense. And you have, you've got power and you've got just a, a huge thumper in Carlos Hyde. And then you've got Christian McCaffrey, who is your running back slash wide receiver, who is running the sale route out of the backfield in the red zone, who is in the formation with Carlos Hyde and then gets split out wide in the slot and runs a whip route. And, and I'm imagining, I mean, the, the way the guy runs option routes is a little stupid. And if you can imagine him running an option route on a linebacker when he comes out of the backfield on, you know, a play action, that, that just, it gets you a little excited. I just don't think he's going to be there when the Niners draft again in the second round. Um, but if he is, I mean, I wouldn't be mad if they drafted him. I mean, I would be a little yeah. bit because you shouldn't draft running backs. I don't that know high, that. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know that like at what? 33 or 30, 33, 34, 34 yeah. wherever they're, they're at there in the second round. That's probably a little I know. early. It's too early. I know but, it's but value, I, but still, I agree that the fit would be good. I mean, uh, Sam Monson, I think, uh, um, of PFF made this point on, tw- on Twitter earlier this week that, that he is a guy um, you know, maybe almost more than anyone else that it, it really, his success is going to depend on where he lands in the fit. Like yeah. he could be a guy that if used properly, um, you know, if he goes somewhere like I, I agree with Kyle Shanahan, you know, uh, if you went to like new England, who knows how to use these type of players, um, yeah. that he could be this like piece that sort of tears defenses apart. That it's just like a nightmare to try to match up with. Um, or he could be if he goes to the wrong spot oh, he, he could like go to the rams Tavon austin <laughs> right like you're a guy that's just yeah an okay backup and, yep. and is really kind of an uh yep. you know just another guy in the league so yeah it's going to be really interesting to see where he goes um i don't know that i want to take him at 34 but hey if he's there in the third round let's do it if he's there in the third round i will literally flip a lot of things um so <laughs> let's talk about the let's talk about the importance of center because you've got Daniel Kilgore, and he is someone who definitely has some health problems, but is a solid center when he's playing in the game. And of course, Alex Balducci is the guy who backs him up. <laughs> uh, and, and so you, you look at the importance of the center in the scheme, and, and I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about how important Alex Mack was for Atlanta, what he does for their run game, and why Kyle Shanahan really prizes centers in his scheme. I mean, Alex Mack uh, is a monster. Like, if you have a chance, like, if you have Game Pass, turn on that Falcons tape, like, watch him. Just just watch him do things, because he does things that centers shouldn't be able to do. Like, it's it's kind of insane. And and so, it really is, there, there's a couple things. Like, one, he's obviously going to be responsible. Centers in, in most offenses are responsible for kind of setting everybody else up, right? They're the ones that kind of dictate like, okay, this is who we're going to block, right? He's going to set the mic. He's going to get everybody blocking the guy that they should be, make all of your line calls, all that sort of thing. So you need somebody that can process information quickly, that, that's kind of a smart player um, and, and that can handle all of those sort of assignments. So he's really great in that regard. And then center is also really key in the the outside zone because if you can, if you have a center that can reach a shaded nose, so again, so that shade, right? He's on one one of the shoulders, effectively. If you have a guy that can handle that nose by himself and be able to reach that player and cut off that backside, it is such a benefit. 
because now that frees up your guard to be able to get up to the second level and pick off the linebacker without having to to kind of waste any time or, or you know help out the center to really make sure that you get that guy cut off. He can just get straight up, attack the linebacker immediately. So it really helps out the rest of your offensive linemen if you have a great player at that center spot. Um, and, and Alex Mack, uh, you know, obviously he was really great in, in Cleveland and, and familiar with him there. Shanahan thought so much of him that he wanted to get him down to Atlanta. Um, I mean, getting a caliber, uh, a player of that caliber at that position, uh, I don't know if the Niners are going to be able to do that right away, but uh, it's it's on the wish list for sure. And, and that's no disrespect to Kilgore. I mean, I think he is, like you mentioned, a solid player. I think he... And I think he could do okay in this scheme. Like, I don't think he would be a liability necessarily. Like, he's going to be a, a, a decent player. Um, but if you have kind of a, one of the better guys in the league that can handle those sort of things on his own, um, it, it really just makes your run game that more effective. Yeah, I think that that's... I actually have high hopes for Kilgore at the center spot in Shanahan's offense. I think Staley is going to be Staley. It'll be interesting to see how much age is going to affect him because he is in the twilight of his career for sure. And he, he started to drop off a little bit last year and whether it be because of injury or just because of age, I wonder how much longer he's, he's going to be the Staley that we know and love. And, and then you've got Beatles who's Beatles. You've got Kilgore. I'm going to be interested to see what uh, Garnett does. And I think Trent Brown, he's already a liability in the run game. I think this is only going to further make him a liability in the run game. So I think we're going to need some kind of right tackle help. But I think the scheme is fun. The scheme is interesting. The scheme will get taught appropriately. It'll be interesting to see how the players react uh, because I know we've got the running back for it. uh, And I know we're probably going to add another running back for it. So uh, I think really it's going to be the offensive line that's going to make this go. And whether or not we've got them is going to be an interesting development here in San Francisco, irrespective of how much mother effing capital we've spent on this goddamn <laughs> position group uh because it's not like we haven't drafted for them but you know here we are yeah yeah i mean it's uh it's something that they're, they're gonna have to address for sure but uh you know you're not gonna be able to address everything in one off season it's gonna take some time you know it's gonna be like you mentioned it's gonna be coached properly they've been doing this the guys that have been uh that are going to be help helping to implement this scheme have been doing it for a long time so um you know certainly optimistic there and it's it's I mean, when when the outside zone works well, it's hard to find a prettier play in football. Like it just it looks yep. nice. It It's just it's so effective when it's run well, like uh, it, it really is a great play. So, yeah, it'll it'll be fun to see this develop and see them, um, you know, fit guys in and, and be able to kind of bring the scheme there because it's been, again, effective for th- this combination uh, the scheme that we're looking at here is, is been effective for 20 plus years. Like it's, uh, it, it's a good scheme. Shanahan, like you mentioned, um, that's the best thing about it is that he's willing to try these new wrinkles, right? He's willing to take these things, these kind of established old school principles, but adapt it for the new game and, and continue to come up with new wrinkles and, and newer things. Like we're going to see RPOs there run pass options. Like that's going to be a part of his game. All of that stuff, all of these newer techniques we're going to see. So, it should be it should be fun once they get the players, especially like year one might not be great. Uh, it might not be very pretty because they don't have a lot of talent there, but we're we're going to get there as, as assuming that Jed actually sticks to his word and, and is a little patient with this thing. So that about does it for this week's episode, man. We got through a lot of just about three plays really is what we did here. But uh, but that's what I mean, 
Next week is just a passing game is what we're going to get into. This is going to be a couple weeks of, of offensive Kyle Shanahan-based podcast before we get into the free agency preview because March is upon us, my friend. It is already the end of February. And, and you've got a free agency negotiating window that we're going to tackle. And then after that, we're going to talk about some free agents. We're going to be watching some film. We're going to talk about... Uh, you know what we learned from the scouting academy because we're both actively engaged in uh, in that. Uh, I'm going through it quite a bit slower than David is, uh, <laughs> but we're still definitely getting through it and learning a lot. So yeah, we've got a whole slate full of content ready for for y'all all the way through. I'm just looking through our calendar of events all the way through April. I mean, we've got a podcast every week. Yeah, I mean, all the we way were, through the middle you know, of we, April. We talked about every other week during the off season, but that's really not going to come into play until kind of post draft. Like I think once yeah, we, exactly. we wrap up all of the. Uh, you know, what actually happened during the draft and kind of going through a lot of those players, then we're going to slow things down a little bit through, uh, you know, probably June and July. And then, man, it's and then it's already ready for, for 2017 and getting the increases right. and stuff. So it's going to move right. quickly. So our call to action this week, we planned ahead of time because Jerry <laughs> Rice gave us a nugget of gold uh, on Twitter. Oh, uh, and yeah, so the call to action is going to be, can we do that again? Because Jerry Rice tweeted out, uh, hashtag things I say after sex. Can Can we we do do that that again? again? Uh, Uh, So Jerry Rice, uh, you know what? You crazy, man. You crazy. But can we do that again? I mean, I I just immediately think of like somebody that had sex for the first time. And is like, oh, my God, can we do that one more time? Because that was was really quick. It happened all. It was also fast. I don't know what I'm doing. Can we do it again? again? Flash Uh, 80. Part of so, me wishes, so yeah. wishes that Jerry Rice never joined. I mean, other than this, if this was his lone tweet, like that would be great. Um, I, I kind of wish that he would never join. He's a he's an interesting individual, <laughs> great football player, interesting individual. But that about does it. Remember, if you like us, definitely leave a review on the iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And uh, and yeah, we enjoy it. I had a lot of fun. This was I love getting into the. Uh, all the scheme stuff. Uh, and so that's what you're going to be getting for the next four or five weeks. So thanks again to everyone who tuned in. You can always catch me on the Twitters at Better Rivals. David, where can they catch you and your new handle? What? There's no underscore now. Uh, it's going to be at Newman NFL. In Deedly Doodly. So thanks again for listening and tuning in. And as always, go Niners. I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.